We should be more concerned with our image or how we are viewed by others than in walking in the light of God's grace and truth where freedom is actually found. Oftentimes, Christ followers are tempted toward hypocrisy because they misunderstand the gospel and the church. They wrongly think that they are saved by their religious works and performance, and so then they wrongly think that life in the local church is about trying to maintain an image of perfection. Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor in the 1800s, said this, You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. The church is faulty, but that is no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church in Acts, as well as Crosspoint, every church is an imperfect church. Now, when we hear imperfect church, we sometimes wrongly equate that to, to thinking, well, then like uh, sin, it's no big deal. I mean, we're imperfect. Come on, we're, we're, we fall short. And we use our imperfection as a justification for continuing in sin. That's not the Spurgeon quote. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. The church in Acts wasn't perfect going into Acts 5. It wasn't perfect coming out of it. But what we do see here is a husband and wife who was tempted to live in awe of themselves rather than the God who would save them. And it led to pretending, which then leads to the divine judgment of God. In the end, the church in Acts is reminded to live in awe of the Lord. Frankly, this story will seem shocking to us, the swiftness of judgment towards sin, the instant nature to it. It was shocking to those in the church then as well. The type of instant judgment is suggested elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11, but it's pretty unique in the New Testament. Remember the context of the Acts storyline we are in. The church is growing by the thousands, and at the same time, it is a young church, days, weeks old. The church is an infant. It's fragile. It needs care and protection from external threats. It's susceptible to sickness and disease from within. Yesterday, by God's grace, we got to hold and hang out with our three-and-a-half-week-old grandson. Fragile, precious, in need of care, in need of love, in need of protection. This is the picture of the church in the New Testament. And we've seen the external threat of persecution and opposition to the church. We'll see that again next week. But today, there's an internal threat. The internal threat of the disease of sin that can hinder the health of the church. In fact, the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts is this story. Acts 4 finishes with a powerful picture of the life in this early church, including their voluntary generosity toward one another. The people were willing, not out of compulsion, not out of legalistic requirement. They were willingly selling personal possessions in order to meet the needs of those around them. 
In verses 36 through 37, we learn that Barnabas sold a field that he owned. He brought the money. He laid it at the apostles' feet and entrusted them to disperse and meet the needs of others. So if Barnabas was a positive example that we are to learn from and follow, this story opens with another example that we, a negative example that we are to avoid. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5, but, so there's this contrast to what we saw in Barnabas right before to what we're going to see now. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this couple, they've seen and heard of the generosity of Barnabas. They've seen how he brought the, the gift of money to the apostles, laid it at their feet, that, that they see Barnabas as a source of encouragement. So just like Barnabas, they sold the property, and that's where the similarities stop. That phrase, kept back in the Greek, means to put aside for oneself. There's a dishonesty here. It's the same Greek word used in Titus 2, translated to steal. The same word used in the story of Achan in Joshua 7, which has a similar story of deception. Ananias and Sapphira had agreed to live two-faced at this moment. Hey, we sold some property, apostles, and here we are. Here are the proceeds, pretending that what they brought was all of it, when in fact it wasn't. They wanted to look more spiritual more pious than they really were. They wanted to be seen in the same light as Barnabas. Sin had distracted them from living in awe of the Lord, had redirected them to live in, in, in awe of themselves. So in their giving of a gift, it was this motivation of, look at us, look at us, look at us, and not look at the resurrected Jesus and look at him alone. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. As one pastor says, faking faith in the presence of God is a fearful thing. Faking faith in the presence of God is a fearful thing. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, has clear discernment on what is happening, the motivations of Ananias' heart. We, we see two fillings happening here in the early church. Peter and the believers are said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here, Ananias, his heart has been filled with lies from Satan. This is the first time since Jesus' uh, cross that Satan is referred to in the scriptures. Be before the cross, his strategy was to kill Jesus. Well, that didn't work. So now his strategy is to hinder and kill his living and active body, his church from within, not just from outside persecution, but from within through the selfishness and the lurking pride of people. Why has Satan filled your heart? The meaning of the word filled there was the idea of control or influence. Even though believers are indwelt with the Spirit of God at our conversion, that doesn't mean we are still not susceptible this side of heaven to the scheming, to the tempting of our spiritual enemy. Now, we are abs under absolutely no obligation to succumb to the devil. 
We do spiritual battle from the high ground. For our faith is in the victorious one who has overcome sin, death, and the devil. Someone has used the analogy before. Imagine you owned a home and year after year, you left every window, you left every door wide open. You never locked anything and you literally left the windows and doors open. The house would be wide open to any sort of intrusion from people to weather to animals. And if left wide open for years on end, the house would be in disarray. In the same way, when it comes to our to the spiritual warfare that we are in the midst of from Acts until now, we are tragically naive if we think that we as believers can just leave our lives wide open to any and all influences and not think our spiritual enemy is, is at play and not think our spiritual enemy is seeking to tempt and lead astray. Parents, you must be spiritually discerning for the next generation. You are the God-given protection and covering for your child's life, don't fall asleep and don't grow weary. There is a spiritual war happening. The Spirit of God leads to truth every single time. Satan leads to lying and untruth every single time. Galatians 5 says that if we are led by and controlled by the Spirit of God, it leads to fruit such as love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. When we are led by Satan, and casually welcome his destructive influence and, and not gird ourselves up in spiritual armor and walk in the fullness of the Spirit and walk in community with other people, it leads to obvious works of flesh, things such as sexual immorality, rage, idolatry, dissensions, addictions. In verse 4, Peter tells Ananias that they were under no obligation to give of the money. Wasn't it yours, the money you made off that sale, wasn't it yours to disperse how you See fit? See, remember, again, the people were freely giving. It was a reflection of their transformed hearts. So it wasn't giving to get more. It wasn't giving for the praise of others. It wasn't some external force saying, you must give X amount. No, the early church was giving because they wanted to. Because they wanted to. They, they had hearts that were new. They've been so lavishly loved by the Lord, been shown such lavish grace and mercy that they were seeking to love their neighbor and love the Lord and invest into the kingdom and store up treasure in heaven in that same lavish way. So Ananias, you were not obligated to give. There was no contract or constraint that forced you to give, right? Why is it that you plan this thing in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. The idea here is how can you do this? How can you do this? So what is his sin? His sin was not that he didn't give it all. It was that he implied that he did. It's pride, deception, self-righteousness. Look how generous we are. Look how we sold this property. And we're laying it at the apostles' feet. Look how we're like Barnabas. It was smoke and mirrors. They wanted to look more generous than they really were. It was hypocrisy at its finest and lowest. It was self-exaltation rather than humility. Their motivation was not to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love their neighbor in the same way. No, it was love of self. Honor me. Praise us. And Peter tells him it was a lie against the Lord, ultimately. Maybe what Ananias and Sapphira thought was, well, Jesus has ascended to heaven, and with him the power and the presence of God on earth 
And they neglected the truth that the Father, Son, and Spirit are, are one. Or maybe they thought the Spirit was just concerned with the outward work of the church and reaching people and making disciples and not with internal matters of the hearts of the believers. Or maybe they thought that no matter how hypocritical they were, God always tolerates everything and, it's, and he's, the only, he's only a God of grace and not of holiness and justice or that he never disciplines those he loves. In believing such lies of the enemy, they'd lost sight of who the Lord truly is. In the early church, the Spirit is producing this type of radically different community, gospel-centered, focused on loving the Lord, loving one another, and hypocrisy, deceit, lying, self-exaltation, pride of man, all of those are contrary to the Spirit's work. Their sins against the Spirit of God. And all of those sins were direct threats and in opposition to the inward community and health of the, of, of the church and the outward testimony of the early church. And so they don't go unnoticed or ignored by God. It's His church. He's the chief shepherd. The church is being built on Him as the cornerstone. Why such swift and immediate judgment? Remember, this is a pivotal time in the church. The church is so young, so fragile, like an infant. The future of the church is potentially at stake. One author wrote, the way Ananias and Sapphira attempted to reach their goals were so dramatically opposed to the whole thrust of the gospel that to allow it to go unchallenged would have set the entire mission for the church off course. Ananias drops dead. This is not the judgment of Peter. This is the judgment of the Lord. First Peter or First John 5, 6 says, or 5.16 says there is a sin that leads to death. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter, ask her, did you sell the land for this price? Parents, have you ever asked your child a question that you've got a sneaking suspicion you already know the answer to? Now, you ask that question, one of your motivations might be to see if they walk in the light or to see if they stick with their cover-up story. Just a little tidbit for you next generation ones. Questions coming your way, walk in the light. Be wise. Students, I beg you. I beg you to walk in the light. Walk in the light. Nothing good or godly grows in the dark. Nothing good or godly grows in the dark. Nothing. Life, freedom, joy, grace are found in his light alone. Sapphira could have walked in the light here. She could have said, yeah, you know what? Yeah, that's not the price we sold it for. We just wanted to make ourselves look better than we really are. We wanted to appear religious. We wanted to appear holy. But she went with yes. Yes, Peter, for that price. She reveals her own heart and has agreed with the plan of deception and hypocrisy. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. The meaning of the phrase to test the spirit of the Lord means to presume on him, to see how much you can get away with before he judges. It's to presume upon the lie that you think, you, created being, think that the spirit, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present in this world, can somehow 
be deceived, can somehow turn his back in a sense like the grandparent, like, oh, I didn't see that. You think you can outsmart the Spirit. The Spirit of God is never deceived, loved ones, and that's for your good. It's not for your punishment. It's for your good. It's for your freedom, for your joy. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, speaking of, these young men, they have a tough, terrible job today. I don't know what you'd do tomorrow. It's not as bad as these guys. They found her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard those things, heard these things. Again, what we see here is the visible judgment of God. Judgment, this swift, is rare in the New Testament. And yet, bear in mind, the cross of Christ is in the New Testament. When we see the wrath of our God toward sin on display through the brutality of the cross, and the death of Jesus is during the lifetime of Ananias and Sapphira. And the cross is a reminder that sin has consequences. Sin will be dealt with. We're told in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The Lord very early on in the history of the church has given a warning to the church. A warning that sin from within can destroy. A warning not to treat the Holy Spirit with contempt or disrespect. See, some of us might hear this account and go, that's not my God. That's not my God. My God wouldn't do that. Listen, one thing we're notorious in doing is projecting our ideas, created beings, upon God, creator. And so we make God out in our image. Like a child drawing a picture on a blank sheet of paper, we say, I like a God this way and that. No, no, not that way. I like this. And we make God out in our image. And when we do that, we diminish his true character. And at the same time, we're exalting ourselves. Oh, we'll be creator. Oh, look, give me the crayons. And we make God out in our image, a God who always suits us. The late R.C. Sproul said this, God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he's so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as opportunity to become bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he's powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is we think we can get away with our revolt. And that's where Ananias and Sapphira were. And in both verses 5 and 11, when they drop over, the result is a great fear came upon all who heard and the whole church. Fear is a part of worship. The reverent awe of the majesty, the power, the holiness, the perfection, the all-knowing nature of our God. If he were not those things, he would not be worthy of our worship. If he were simply the man upstairs, the big guy above, who is slightly smarter than you and I, then we should not worship him. I don't want to worship the big guy up above. If he's not just towards sin and lets some things slide, other things, if he's inconsistent, if he doesn't know every detail of our hearts and lives, if, if he's getting sleepy and missing out on injustice, if he's powerless to make right the wrongs and comfort the grieving and bring hope to the hopeless and bring life to those dead in sin, then loved ones, 
Let's not bow our knee to him if that's who he is because he's not good enough. He's not big enough. He's not powerful enough to worship. But our God is not the man upstairs, the big guy above. He is eternal. He's beyond time and space. He knows all. He sees all. He spoke the world into existence with his word. He holds the planet of, uh, on their axis. And at the same time, he, he knit together your children. He fearfully and wonderfully fit you together in these most precise ways, as well as holding the universe in its orbit. His character is unchanging. He's so pure, so perfect, so beautiful, so holy in every way. He is God and we are not and he is who we've been designed to live in awe of. The more we grow in the knowledge of who our God is through his revealed word, the more our reverent awe of him grows. Think of the second verse of Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed, knowing who God is, that he is holy and just towards sin." We can't save ourselves, that we're lost apart from him. And at the same time, to know that in Christ, we've been shown amazing grace. And his grace has covered our sin. His grace has set us free from our sin, given us eternal life, salvation from hell, abundant life here in this life and the life to come, being extended the grace of God, having received the grace of God, that leads us to a place of reverent awe. One pastor said, biblical fear is awe mixed with intimacy. I love that. Think of a thunderstorm for a minute. Imagine you're on the uh, front porch of a, a big farmhouse, big front porch in the middle of a field and a massive thunderstorm comes rolling in. And with it comes power far greater than you and I. The thunderstorm produces fear in you because you're thinking, I don't want to go play out in the field. Hey, let's go climb a pole. Like, nobody's doing that because it produces a healthy fear that is for you. So you're not flipping about the storm. Like, it's no big deal. No, you're in awe of it. And at the same time, you're not going inside. You're not flipping on the TV. No, you want to remain on the porch because that is the best seat in the house. And you're from the Midwest. That's where we watch storms. <laughs> it's safe on the porch. You're covered. You're protected. You can get a front row seat to the power, the creativity, and the majesty of the storm. Listen, for the Christ follower, for the person who's repented and believed the good news, we are hidden in Christ. We are covered in his blood. We've been forgiven. His righteousness has been given to us by faith, and he took our unrighteousness upon that cross. To use the idea of Exodus in the Old Testament, judgment has passed over. Because our faith is in Jesus and his work on the cross and he bore the wrath, the weight, the penalty in full upon that tree, we are safe in Christ. And so we sit on the porch living in reverence and awe, the brilliance, the holiness, the power of a God who is not far off, but now through Christ is our heavenly father and we are his adopted, secure kids, all mixed with intimacy. And the awe continues in the next section, verses 12 through 16 that the Sittler men wrote, read. Remember how the church prayed in, in verse 30 of the previous chapter? Well, we see that, that answer come to pass here. Verse 30 said, Lord, 
in, in, in Acts 4, Lord, stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, and we see it come to pass in the next chapter. The Lord is faithful to answer the prayers of his people, and his power is on display through the apostles, and such signs and wonders were authenticating and testifying that the apostles could be trusted, and this message was from the Lord. It was true. This movement was not man-made in the slightest. It was the power of the one true God on display. And as the power of God is on public display, the outward testimony of the church continues to be attractive to many. The people spoke well of the church, for the church was active in its ministry to those who were hurting, enslaved, and sick, the humbled. Not the proud who didn't think they need help, but the humble is where the church was doing their ministry. The Lord continued to increase the numbers of those who were being saved. Notice in verse 16, the circle of those being reached is, is widening, not by the apostles leaving Jerusalem. That won't happen until chapter 8, but rather by the people in the surrounding towns coming to Jerusalem for ministry, to see and hear of what the risen Lord Jesus is doing through the people of God who are empowered by the Spirit of God. One of the great hindrances of the health of the church, its ministry and mission, is not on the outside, it's on the inside. It's a sin that can creep into our lives and into the life of the church family. If we know that we all have remaining sin, that none of us are free from temptation and our flesh is sometimes weak, so what are we to do? Well, 1 John 1 and 2 gives us good counsel. I'd encourage you to read these chapters this week. It reminds us, which Acts is already reminding us of this, that God is light. There's absolutely no darkness in him. And if we say we know this God of light and yet walk in darkness, we're liars. But if we walk in the light of our God who is light, if we confess our sin to him, not only does the blood of Jesus cleanse us from all unrighteousness, make us clean, it also brings us together, gives us fellowship with one another in the family of God. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, John reminds us that when we do sin, Jesus is the one whose sacrifice on the cross covers and atones for our sin. The Lord Jesus is our advocate. So when we sin, we don't run from our advocate, trying to find some other false advocate. No, we run to the one who actually sets us free, who forgives us, gives us power, makes us new. And then John tells us that when we know the Lord, we'll keep his commands. We will walk. We will seek to walk as Jesus walked. What we see the early church doing is walking in the light of God and enjoying his grace and enjoying fellowship with one another as a result. Ananias and Sapphira were unwilling to walk in the light, unwilling to confess their hypocrisy and spiritual pretending. The sin is not fatal. It's the refusal to be honest about the sin and seek forgiveness and choose repentance and walk in a new way. That's what proved fatal then and proves fatal to this day. If you lie, you die. And yet we all lie. So we all die. It's all bad news. But then good news enters in. Jesus came to live and didn't lie and yet died for us who did lie. And then on the third day, rose, beat death, beat sin, beat the enemy, the greatest liar. 
So now, through faith in him and by grace alone, we can die to sin, including lying, including spiritual pretending, and instead live for the Lord Jesus in a new creation way. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As we move back into singing, we're going to sing one song, and during this last song, we'll give our offering as well. A few questions for us to consider as we go to prayer. Loved ones, what's in your heart and life that needs to be moved into the purifying and loving light of our God today? Where's there two-faced living in your life that needs to be confessed to the Lord and between a brother or sister in Christ? Where's there this desire to be a spiritual performer with the intent to exalt yourself? Where are you presuming upon and testing the spirit of God? What lies are you believing about who the Lord is? Father, Son, and Spirit, you know all and you see all. We can't hide. To try to hide is silly. It was, it's been silly since Genesis 3. And we don't want to try and cover our sin through our spiritual performance or our religious pretending. We don't want to live lives of duplicity and deceit. Remind us of your good news today. Remind us of your sufficient sacrifice that covers all our sin. Remind us of your lavish love that is found in you and you alone. Teach our hearts to run to you in times of temptation and sin. Teach us to walk in the light. Teach our hearts to trust who you are as revealed through your word, that you are the fullness of truth, the fullness of grace, and only in you is freedom, forgiveness, and eternal life found. Increase our awe of who you are, Lord Jesus. Help us to live all of life in light of you. You are able we trust you, we love you, Jesus, and thank you that you first loved us. We pray this in your name, amen. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his hands so that he, so that he so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God.